Um, we are in a series called Good, Beautiful, and Kind. And now, before I start last weekend, if you were here for Pastor Pierre's message, he said that uh, sometimes he preaches sermons that are uh, more for him than they are for you. Uh, that is such a freeing thing to say, because my topic today is uh, being a calming presence, okay? Now, if you know me, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm not that, okay? So it, it's something I'm working through, um, but my, my wife describes it as like my brain will be buzzing, okay? That's essentially how I operate my everyday life is this heightened sense. Um, stress and anxiety sounds so bad, but I mean, it's essentially, if I put my finger on it, you'd probably be like, yeah, you sound stressed out and anxious. It's like, yeah, but I love the, the energy around it. So um, I've never really, no one's ever sat me down and been like, man, just such a calming presence about you. You ever talk to somebody who's like really into spiritual stuff and they're like, man, you just have this aura. You know, there's just an aura. There's like, I'm so calm around you. Like that's never been said to me uh, ever in my life. Uh, so, and uh, to be quite honest, I don't know if I want that. Um, I don't want to carry that weight of being like, a, anyway. But I'm going to talk about the importance of being a calming presence. Now, I want you to know that once uh, COVID hit, we were forced to not be around people, right? And like my, I just, I I, that gives me anxiety. Um, but over the course of like a year and a half, I realized I kind of like being by myself. Like there's something about just being home and having no responsibilities that I kind of really enjoyed. Like I didn't have to go to a party. People couldn't beg me to come to things. And like, not that they were, but they couldn't, even if they wanted to, which is also freeing. It's like, I know they want me there, you know, but they can't because of COVID. And so, uh, but there was something about it. And I was like, man, maybe I can turn the corner on my personality and be one of those introverts, like one of those odd people who just don't talk. You know what I mean? And I was like, but, and then I started to think like, man, maybe this is what being a calm presence is really all about. Maybe it's, maybe it's personality driven. Maybe if you're the type of person, why'd you stop playing? That was so beautiful. That was crazy. Rufus, we want to go somewhere? <laughs> what? Man. Um, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I thought, man, maybe being a calming presence is like the person who wants to get up before the sun, you know, drive out to Charlotte Beach. If you're watching from somewhere else, it's really like it's the Rochester Beach and it's nothing to shake a stick at. Okay. So just like it's us though. So uh, you, you go to Charlotte and you just watch the sunrise, you know, or you grab a kayak and like, that's like your thing. And it's like, man, that's such a calming presence. I was like, maybe I can get into this hiking thing and I can just go with it. Um, but what I want to tell you today is that being a calming presence has nothing to do with a personality trait. Being a calming presence is not a personality trait. Now, there are some people who are more calm than others. But God's desire is that every follower of Jesus can carry a calm presence in the midst of trying times. You do not have to be a morning person. You do not have to be a nature person. You don't have to know how to put words together eloquently on your Insta reels in order to be a calm presence. Like, it has nothing to do with personality. Now, what I want to do is skip ahead because in this life, we will have trouble. Like, I can promise you, if there's anything that I can promise you, is that this life will have 
trouble. You will face things that aren't fair. You will face things that are going to keep you up at night. There will be stress. There will be anxiety. There will be fear. Trouble will come. Scripture says, in this life, you will have trouble. God's desire is that in the midst of those experiences, we become a calm presence. Becoming a calm presence in the midst of trying times. Now here's the key. You have to know who you are. If you want to be a calm presence, you have to know where to go, and you can never give up. If you want to be a calm presence, know who you are, know where to go, and never give up. Now I'm going to talk about David today. I'm not, we do not have time to go through every element of David's life, okay? Because it's like at least three books of the Bible speak into David. What we're going to do is take a very short period of time before David was made king, and we're going to talk about that. Now, I know there's a lot of views in the room. If you know anything about David, there's going to be a lot of opinions. Scripture calls him a man after God's own heart, okay? Great title. If you, like, that is just, he's a friend of God. David also destroyed a family, okay? He slept with a woman who was not his wife. He broke up that family. In order to hide it, he literally calls the woman's husband back from war, which he should have been to, by the way, but he wasn't because he had some issues. Ends up getting that guy killed to try to cover up this sin that he did. Doesn't get away with it. I agree with most of the opinions in the room that David had some jacked up things about him, okay? And maybe at some point we can do a whole series on David. But if I don't say the name Bathsheba today, it's not because I'm disregarding that part of David's story. It's not because we're trying to overlook it. All I want to do is focus on one aspect of David's story that I think is actually going to set some people free today, okay? So just if you have that view of David, please, let's just put it on the shelf for a minute because I agree with you, okay? And then we will have a very good conversation here uh, about David. Now, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. I got to give you some context about when we actually meet David and what the Israelites were actually going through during this time. Because uh, this moment that we're going to talk about is really the first time in the nation of Israel that they really became that. They, would, they would always been a marginalized group of tribes. Okay, when they, get, when they escaped Egypt, when they got out of captivity, there was 12 tribes of Egypt. They were a marginalized group. Now, what they started to realize is that these other countries are, were centralized states. They had massive armies, and they were killing them. And so if you read through Scripture, Israel begs for a king. What we're about to read is really the first time Israel went from a marginalized uh, group of tribes to a centralized state. This is very important. Secondly, they are at war with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, this is, the Philistines are basically the reason why Israel begged for a king. Is because of the Philistines. They, the Philistines were bigger, they were stronger, they were more aggressive, they had weapons. The Philistines, actually what they were known for is they would produce iron, okay? They were the iron-producing people. So if anybody else wanted weapons, they would go to the Philistines. Now you can imagine how jacked up this gets if you are the people fighting the people who produce weapons. You don't get them. They denied the Israelites' weapons. There's actually a verse in 1 Samuel uh, early on, I think in chapter 13 or 14, where it, it literally says there was only two people in the Israel army that had weapons. It was Saul and it was his son Jonathan. Nobody else had iron-produced weapons. This is no longer a fair fight. Now, the third thing to add just fuel to this fire is that uh, God has rejected Saul as king. 
Saul was a guy who he had so many dysfunctional issues. Like he just wasn't a great leader. Okay, his power was consistently challenged by those close to him. His own son, his own son, the people considered him a hero, and Saul was going to kill his own son just to save face. I mean, Saul had some issues. The three emotions that dictated all of Saul's actions were insecurity, uh, jealousy, and suspicion. He was jealous of everyone. He was insecure of anybody who was better than him at anything, and he was always suspicious of the people around him. That dictated all of his actions to the detriment of Israel, and it ultimately led to Saul's demise. Now, it is in this space where David shows up with a king who has an unsubmitted heart and has an inability to see the purposes of God. This is when David enters the picture. This is very important because uh, what you need to know is everybody knows the David and Goliath story. It's a great story. In sports, it's like it's a David and Goliath battle, the ultimate underdog, okay? Love it. It's great. Uh, Not really an underdog story, but we're going to talk about it in a second, okay? So David and Saul actually knew each other before Goliath. Also something you don't know. David didn't just rock up to the army and meet Saul for the first time. No, Saul had some serious issues where he was, he was mentally fatigued and scared to the point where uh, he would just be irrationally angry. And so he said, I need somebody to help me. And uh, one of his attendants is like, well, I know a guy named Jesse. His son plays the harp. Uh, he's also a warrior and he's a fine looking man. Like, Let's have him come play. I love that they give you those descriptions because the guy knew what Saul needed. He didn't just want some, some jack off the street. He was like, no, he's a warrior. He can play the harp. And by the way, he's great looking. And so this is, this is the reason David was noticed, was noticed was because of his unique ability to fight and he could be a calm presence. That was why David was noticed. He could fight and he had the ability to be a calm presence. So David goes and starts playing the harp for Saul. Now, again, do not mistake a calm presence with a contemplative personality. It's not a personality trait. It's submitting your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. Being a calm presence is submitting your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. So what was it about David that gave him such a calm presence? What was it that gave him a calm presence in the midst of trying circumstances? I'm going to tell you. David, first of all, he knew who he was. David knew who he was. In 1 Samuel 17, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, speaking about Goliath, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Your servant will go and fight him. Now remember, all Saul has really seen David do is play a harp. He's never actually seen him fight. So they have a conversation, which we'll talk about later. And then Saul, he dresses David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic, and he tried walking around because he was not used to them. David's like, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, then he took a staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones uh, from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. See, David knew what he needed to get the job done. He understood who he was. David was a very self-aware individual. Now, I'm decently self-aware. For example, I know that I cannot dance, okay? It's just a part of who I am. You will never catch me dancing. You will never see it. I promise you, you will never see it. Unless for some reason something comes over me in my house, 
and I dance, and Esther films it and puts it on, films it, records it, and puts it on Instagram, you will never see it because I understand what dancing does to me and to those around me, okay? I get it. I understand it's embarrassing. I understand. Like, Dewa was up here yesterday or last week telling me I was unmelanated. Like, I am, and I just, I just know, I just know where to draw lines, okay? Uh, the movie Hitch saved my life as a, a high school student because uh, Will Smith was just like just 90 degrees, right? Like, and just snap and just move side to side. I could handle that. Save me, okay? And so, like, I get it. In a very similar way as me, David was a very self-aware individual. He knew what was going to work. And you have to picture the situation that David walks up on, Okay? David's dad's like, hey, go give, your, uh, go give your brother some food because obviously they were undersupplied because Saul didn't know what he was doing. So David gets there, and the situation is intense, okay? Again, the army is underweaponized. We've already known that. They've lost their morale. If you, if you read about what the, th- the things that the soldiers were saying, how they were acting in other battles, and the, com- the king is just completely checked out at this point. And so now the stress of the moment is like, palatable, okay, because we're actually standing on the precipice of the demise of Israel. This is the end of the road. This guy's coming out every day and saying, send someone to fight me. If they win, we lose. If they win, we'll become your slaves. If we win, the whole thing. If you've read it, they know it's the end of the road. David shows up in an extremely stressful circumstance, and he must have just been thinking to himself, well, why isn't anybody just trying to fight him. Like, I, I'll go. I'll go do it. He quickly realizes that this is not a hard fight to win. He's like, have you guys noticed that this guy has an attendant walking him out every day? He can't see. Like, see how big he is? He's going to be slow. Like, what, what are we doing? Like, someone, I'll go fight him. And so then David, he goes to Saul, and he tries on Saul's armor. And it's actually interesting to me that David tried on the armor. It's almost like he's appeasing his boss. He's like, I'll try this on, but I actually know what is going to perform the best. If you want to be a calm presence in the midst of highly anxious times, you have to stop trying to be a cheap version of another broken individual. If you actually want to be, if you want to carry a calm presence, it doesn't work trying to copy someone else's armor. You can't do it. You actually have to ask God, how have you uniquely wired me? What have you done on the inside? How have you uniquely wired me? Because you can try and you'll see it. You'll try it. You'll, You'll think, if I can just copy what this person is doing, I think I'll get through the stress and the anxiety. If I just follow this formula, I think I'm going to be able to do it. It doesn't work. You will never find freedom by trying to be a cheap version of another broken individual. It will never work. You realize that what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is find your truth. What I'm not saying is just just find your truth. I can promise you, culture does not hold the secret to what makes you tick. I can promise you, culture will never help you find your true, authentic self. It is impossible. It will not happen. What's so amazing is that we serve a God who he literally says that he's uniquely wired you. 
Scripture says things like you were knit together in your mother's womb. He says things like, like you were fearfully and wonderfully made. We serve a God who knows the very hairs on your head. It says, like, count the sand of the seashore. So are my thoughts towards you. I don't know about you, but I want to talk to a guy who thinks about me like that. I want to talk to a guy who knows the deepest things about who I am and what makes me me. You cannot survive being a copy. You cannot survive off of somebody else's relationship with God. It will not happen. It doesn't work to try to use somebody else's Holy Spirit to get you through. It will not work. You might think there's a shortcut. You might think there's something that's going to fix it. But no, you have idiosyncrasies and things about you that only God knows. You can Google it. I've been there. You're so stressed out. And you're like, man, maybe if I just Google it. And then you get the WebMD. And you realize, wow, I'm literally going to die tonight. Like, this is the end of the road. Like, what are we going to do? No, it's going to God. Saying, God, I'm consistently stressed out about the same things. I need your Holy Spirit. Show me the way you have wired me. Show me the way you have made me. Now, here's another question. Maybe you are the one who is trying to get your armor onto other people. Oh man, this is not a fun place to be. Saul was so dysfunctional that he had the best equipment in the army, and he knew it, yet he was still hiding in his tent. He wouldn't join the fight. And when the guy finally comes and says, hey, I can do this, Saul's response was, here, take my armor. Use my armor. No. The road, you need to understand that your armor, your journey, your sanctification, your journey of following Jesus, it will not take the same shape as somebody else. Far be it from us to be a place where we try to force our armor, armor onto people who are just searching for hope and acceptance. Far be it from us to be a place that tries to force people into a mold that makes sense to our finite minds. Do you realize that the road to sanctification has never been paved with judgment? The road to sanctification is always paved by kindness and grace. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. What I love about this community, and maybe you're new here, what I love about this church is you will be hard-pressed to find a more diverse place to find yourself on a Sunday morning. I can promise you that. I love the fact that our worship team has every color of the rainbow on it. We embrace it. I would hate to be a place that forces people to code switch in order to fit in. What in the world have we done to ourselves that that is where we are at? No, your armor will not fit other people. Cultural differences are okay. Can we be a place that is patient with the journey that people are on? Can we be a place that is patient with the joy and the sacrifice of sanctification? The joy and the sacrifice of someone coming to a place where we're like, man, I actually think I'm living this thing wrong. Can we be a place that celebrates those moments on a long journey towards sanctification. You, other people will not fit your armor. Anything less than that, mind you, will always lead to confusion and the perversion of what the gospel truly is. Anything less than that. Anything less than you need the Holy Spirit 
to help you figure out this journey. Anything less than that is confusion and perversion. We cannot play the Holy Spirit. We cannot give someone our Holy Spirit. All we can do is point people to Jesus. That is all we can do. If you want to be a calling presence, you have to know who you are. Second thing David never did was David never quit. What I didn't read in that verse, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant's going to go fight him. Saul's like, you are not able to go fight this Philistine. Like, you are young, and he's a warrior from his youth. You don't have it. And as CJ told us a couple weeks ago, like, David was like, that's Cap. Like, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. A lion and a bear. Okay, you have to keep this in mind. Because this is outlandish. David's like, a lion and a bear came and carried off a sheep. You can replace those, okay? Carried off a sheep. He went after the lion and the bear, struck it, rescued the sheep from the mouth. Then the lion and the bear turned on me. I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul's like, all right, go. Lord be with you. Do you realize... I don't know about you, okay? Like, we live, like, upstate. So sometimes, like, you'll hear about bear sightings. The whole, like, if there was ever a bear in Chile, everyone would know. Like, everyone would know that, like, that there's a bear. If there was a seven-and-a-half-foot individual, you might hear it through the grapevine, but odds are you won't care. You're like, oh. But if there was a bear walking down your street and it took your dog, I don't think your first reaction would be, I'm going to go grab it by the hair and strike it down, so help me God. That's not what you would do. If you were outside and the bear came running by you and grabbed your dog, you would not respond well to that situation. In fact, I know this is true because the National Forest Service, whoever these people are, they just released a thing that basically said, hey, if you are at a park with a slower individual and you come across a bear, they literally do not push the slow person down. We don't act rationally around bears, okay? This is, this is not... And we never even see lions, but I can promise you, like, if a lion took your pet, unless it's a cat, you probably, like, if it's because cats, my God, but, like, ugh, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not a cat church, okay? We're a people church. I just need you to know that. I need you to know that. If that offends you, don't worry. I do really like people. Um, um, I just, God has not given me the ability to like cats. Um, but we would all run from a lion and a bear. If a guy tried to take your dog while you were on a walk, your first reaction w would probably be to fight him. Like, I could see that happening. Like, if someone took something, if my, I'm walking down with my kids, and someone tried to, like, you would go nuts. You would go nuts. If it's a lion or a bear, it's like, okay, okay I'm out. Bye. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you save yourself. What David is telling Saul is, I faced a lion and a bear. This guy has no chance against me. I can promise you that. They say, like, when you get, if someone has, like, that thing where they're actually, like, seven and a half feet, eight feet, you get that, like, almost, I think it's almost like a tumor that can grow because you're so tall and your body is growing at such a rate that it will actually, uh, it can grow near your vision and cut your vision off. So some scholars believe that Goliath was being brought out to the battlefield as a attendant because Goliath couldn't see. Added to that, Goliath is, like, seven and a half, eight feet. 
Now, I have a friend who's like 6'10". He's like 320 pounds. I make fun of him constantly because he's so big and everything is just so much slower. I would never fight him like hand to hand. I would never do that. But if I had to run, he would never catch me. I run circles around this guy, right? And so David is looking at this fight and he's saying, if God has given me a lion and a bear, I'm going to kill this guy. The sling, what you need to know about a sling they say about, at this time, like two years of practice, you become proficient with a sling. That, that rock travels so fast, it's equivalent of a 45 caliber bullet. Now, mind you, Goliath has a sword. David doesn't need to get near him. This is no longer a fight, okay? It's over before it starts. All that needed to happen was somebody who knew what they were doing, someone who's been through some stuff, had to come along and be like, I understand that all of you think this is a Goliath-sized problem, but I've already been through it. I grabbed a bear by the head, and I killed it. I grabbed a lion by the head, and I killed it. The issue so many of us have is when we're faced with a lion or a bear-type problem, we quit. The issue that happens is you pause your whole life when you come across a lion-type problem. And God would say, if you could only face the problem. You're eventually going to be faced with the Goliath that is going to scare everyone around you. But because you've been through the lion and the bear, you will know exactly what to do. Do not let a lion and bear struggle take you out of the game. It's building muscle so that the Goliath that is coming will be defeated by the well-seasoned battles you've already been through. Your marital issues are solvable. Your relationship with your kids, those issues are solvable. Your financial problems are solvable. Like you can actually find answers to problems in this life. The key is you cannot quit. The only thing that kills people short-sighted on their journey is apathy. Apathy is the deadliest thing that can possibly happen to someone. Have you ever looked in the eyes of someone who's just given up? There's nothing like apathy that will destroy you. No, David never gave up. And it didn't even stop with this because David, now David ends up killing Goliath. Obviously, wasn't a fair fight. Chops his head off the whole, it's nuts. You should read it. If it was ever a movie, it'd be awesome, okay? But somehow we'd ruin it. I know we would, okay? But we, we need to create a really good one. Anyway, David gets back from that and now the Israelite people, they're shady, okay? They're going through these parades, and they're literally chanting, David has killed his ten thousands, Saul his thousands. That is so jacked up, okay? But it happens. And Saul, the way he's wired, he's so mad. He's like, now the only thing left, it literally says it in 1 Samuel 18.8. What more can he get but the kingdom? He's so jealous. Two verses later, it says that the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul. He was in his house while David was playing the lyre or the harp, as he usually did, which would calm Saul down. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Then it says, but David eluded him twice, two times. David sat there and played and allowed this crazed individual to try to kill him twice in the same moment. It gets even worse because uh, once more, war broke out. David went out and fought, as he did. Saul stayed home, as he did. He struck them down. He's the hero. While David was back playing the liar. Isn't this so amazing? David's the type of guy who will fight and then come back and play the harp to calm his boss down. This is unbelievable. 
I'll fight, but then I know what my purpose is in this season. I'm going to play the harp. While he's doing that, Saul gets up and tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. It says that night David made good on his escape, obviously. What happens is throughout this, Jonathan, who's Saul's son, becomes David's best friend. Jonathan comes up to David and he's like, dude, you've got to get out of here. This is not going to go well. Like, he's going to kill you. But David was so locked in on his purpose that he, he, he refused to quit. Even while he's running, he had opportunities to kill Saul, but he understood who Saul was in the eyes of God. He understood his purpose, and he spared Saul's life on at least two occasions that we know of. David was a man who didn't quit. He was a fighter and a peacemaker, a calming presence in the midst of chaos. You need to understand that the only thing that can possibly end the journey is if you quit. For most situations, the only thing that makes them solvable is if you quit. Now, I know there's other things where you have to get out. You have to leave unsafe situations. I'm fully on board. But don't quit the journey that God has you on. Apathy is a deadly weapon. All right. The third thing is David knew where to find refuge. He knew where to find refuge. In the midst of all this, his boss trying to kill him, everything's going haywire. David found himself writing songs that you can read in the book of Psalms like this. Say, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Scripture says when he, when he fled from Saul into the cave, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. If you've been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. He says near the end of his life, at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, I think it's in chapter 22. It's like right before, it's, it's this, and then it says it's his final words. It says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people, you save me. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arm can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. See, David was a calm presence because he, he knew where to find refuge. Refuge is that place that doesn't ignore the trouble. You'll never once find David pretending like he doesn't know the stakes. In fact, if you read through Psalms, so much of it is so like egregiously emotional, it's almost uncomfortable to read. No, David was fully aware of the stakes. He was fully aware of the trouble. He was fully aware that at any moment, he might die. And never once do you see David giving up in these songs. Never once do you see David being like, you know what, I'm just not, this is not for me. No, it's always God, in you I find refuge. In you I find a place that will give me calm in the midst of it all. So where do you 
find refuge? Is your current refuge working? Like you have to ask yourself, what do you do when life throws its biggest obstacles at you? Where do you turn? What do you go to when life actually gets seemingly more than you can handle? Because again, I promise that this life will have troubles. It just so happens that we serve a God who holds the world. It says he holds the world in the palm of his hand. You see, when David is writing these psalms, he's not writing to a God who's out there. It's not like he's a, a kid with a magnifying glass trying to, like, burn all the ants. No, no, it says, he, he talks about this grand God who created the universe, and he said, oh, by the way, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. He's the one who wrote the songs, like the very hairs on my head are numbered. Colossians says that in him all things were created. He literally holds the world in the palm of his hand. And this grand God has the audacity to want a personal relationship with you. He has the audacity to want to step into the pit with you. He has the audacity to say, I'm not afraid of your pain. I'm actually not bothered by the fact that you're going through some stuff beyond all that. I actually want to meet you in the mess. There is no prerequisite for this. There's nothing you have to do. Everything about this makes no logical sense. The question is, where do you turn for refuge? Where are, what shadow are you hiding in? Because I don't know about you, but I would love to hide in the shadow of the wing of the one who created the universe. I would rather hide in the shadow of the wing of the one who holds it all together anyway. Is your current antidote to your chaos just delaying the inevitable? Is the current thing you're trying to do with, to cope with the problem, is it just delaying the inevitable end? I can promise you there is a better way to do this. It's knowing who you are. It's never giving up. And it's knowing where to find refuge with a God who holds it all. You see, when I was in high school, I was graduating. My high, um, it was, I think it was right after my senior year. I'm about to go to college. And I get a call to come home to my, uh, to my house, which in my world, it was never good. Okay, if I ever got called home, it's like, what did you do? Like, and I'm like racking my brain. I'm like, okay, was it a girl? Like, what, what was the thing? And like, it was always like never a, good, never a good situation for me personally. And I was selfish, so I was trying to figure out, what did I do wrong? I get home, my mom and my dad are sitting in the, in the uh, living room. I sit down and my dad, he tells me, he says, we, we just want you to know, uh, your mom, we just got back from the doctor, your mom's been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And now that's like a whirlwind conversation to have with your parents. Because in my world, it was like, oh, everything's like, we're, this is peaches and cream, baby. Everything is going splendidly. That, that like rocked my world for a moment. I'll never forget what my dad said. He looked at me and he said, we're going to get through this. And it, it, at the time, it didn't even like register with me that that was like even like a thing that would keep me going. But it was so interesting, the resolve that was in the room in that moment. We're going to get through this. And if you talk to my mom about it, it's actually very interesting. Like, we come from deep Pentecostal, like, roots, okay? I'm, like, full-fledged, like, the nutty stuff, you know, okay? So, like, we were there, all right? And so the whole time, it was like, we're going to pray. 
that God's going to dissolve the tumor. That was like the thing. It's like, this is going to happen. There's no way she's going to get brain surgery. And I'll never forget, like, she's in the operating room and the doctor comes back and she even asks one more time. She's like, is it still there? And the doctor looked at her like, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's still there. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, I just thought that God, God was going to heal me. And if you talk to her about it, what she'll tell you is that the thing that got her through was tears and tongues. That was it. Now, tongues is like a praying in a spiritual language. If you don't understand what it is, we can talk about it at some point. Tears and tongues. I'm not denying the gravity of the situation, but I know where I'm going to find my refuge through this thing. I'm not denying the fact that this is a really crappy thing to have to deal with, but I'm not, I, I know where I'm going to find my refuge through it. You need to understand that you need to know who you are. You need to know where to go and you can never give up. And the key and the secret to all of this, I promise you, it is not another book. It is not another self-help TikTok. It is not. All it is is receiving the Holy Spirit. The secret, the secret to the pain in your life. It is not. It, it is not another thing. Now, again, if you need professional help, please, for the love of God, go to counseling. It will free you. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will speak through your counselor. So please go get therapy. But my God, you need the Holy Spirit. Jesus literally told his disciples, it is better that I leave so the Holy Spirit can come. He will be your advocate. He will be your comforter. He will be your helper. He will be the thing that gets you through. I promise you that the trying times in your marriage needs the Holy Spirit. The trying times with your kids, it needs the Holy Spirit. Your debilitating stress, maybe it doesn't need any more medication. Maybe it needs the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, the racism in our culture, more legislation would be awesome. Better leaders who actually understand culture would be awesome. But I promise you, it needs the Holy Spirit. I am so tired of just ignoring the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in each and every individual who comes into this place. I want you to know that we firmly believe that the Holy Spirit is here. He convicts people of wrongdoing. He just does. He brings comfort to places that need to be comforted. The scripture, it's so amazing. We don't, like, you don't read it enough. It says, he says, he will give you peace that passes all understanding. People will look at you and they will be like, how is it that you feel so joyful? And you'll be because I know who I am. I know where I'm going and I'm never going to quit. The Holy Spirit has given me the supernatural ability to find joy, peace, patience, love, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Church, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Without it, we are doing it on our own. Without it, you are striving. You are getting tired. You are pushing a boulder up an impossible hill. I promise you, there is something magnificent about just saying, God, I need your Holy Spirit. I need him to come and intervene in every nook and cranny of my soul. The Holy Spirit is the one who will tell you who you are. The Holy Spirit is the one who will help you to never give up when it feels like the odds are stacked against you and it is the Holy Spirit who will be your refuge. So church, I'm not sure where you have found yourself today. I'm not sure what situation you have found yourself in. But I promise you, 
the Holy Spirit wants to be your friend today. I promise you that Jesus wants to save your soul and he wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you are at, if you have found yourself in a place that you don't even like to talk about anymore, you can just put your hands out in front of you. I will do the same. And we are just going to ask that the Holy Spirit would come and be our helper. God, we thank you that your son Jesus has died for each and every sin that is represented in this room. God, again, far be it from us to think that we are better off than somebody else. God, remind us again what it means to be the chief of sinners that you died for. And Jesus, for every individual who has found themselves today in a lion and a bear situation, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and fill them. That the peace that passes all understanding would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That the helper would come, the advocate would come and be with them. That God, our story would be one that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because your Holy Spirit is with us. God, we thank you for the helper of the Holy Spirit. We pray that the gifts of the Spirit would be evident in our life. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in our life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.